0: you for joining us through this edition of the Conversation. Um, can you start by telling me about your upbringing? Uh,
1: I grew up in Cashel, Tipperary.
0: Oh, okay, I'm from Clonmel. I know.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, just very rural, very, uh, you know, nobody in my family or nobody that anybody in my family knew worked in media or television or God forbid film or even theatre. I remember being brought to newspaper printing press when I was a kid by my dad. That was the closest I ever got to mass media. And uh, so it was just completely uh, out of out of character.
0: So where did it come from then?
1: Well, God only knows. One of those is like a a curse. Yeah.
0: Or how did you? When did you? When did it become a? When did it occur to you something you wanted to do? It was never. It was never on the
1: radar as anything. There was no career mm-hmm. in film in the when I was a kid or when I was a teenager. Just didn't exist. There wasn't a, There wasn't an Irish Film Board. Um. I suppose you could get a job in RTE, but that would never have even occurred to me, you know, the idea of getting a job in RTE. Um, so I, I, um, I, I loved films. I watched a lot of films. I ended up going to art school. The art school I went to, somewhere along the line, when they had money in the 70s, they'd invested in a 16mm camera and a Steenbeck editing bench and a TV studio. So they had all this gear lying around and they had no idea what to do with it, so they basically started a film course Despite the fact that they had no idea how to teach film, and we just, uh, I just signed up for the film course, and that was it.
0: Okay. Um, so from there, uh, TG Carr was that your first job? Oh my
1: god, that's a huge job That's about no, that's several years. No, I mean, no, I made a short film that was it was uh, my my student graduation film was the first short film that RTE screened, first ever student film RTE had ever screened. Wow. Um, they bought it for a thousand pounds at the time, which was, no, I think they bought it for £2,000, and it had cost £1,000 to make, so I made 100% profit on my first film, <laughs> and that was it then, I mean, that was, I was I was gone, that was the end. So, uh, yeah, um, made a few short films, and then, um, and starved, and had no idea what to do, and no, uh, you know, I made a short film for the BBC, I made a short for T.G. Carr um, but there was no kind of industry at that point, and then finally the Irish Film Board was reinstated.
0: Okay, okay, so, so then T. G. Carr was it? Yeah, I ended up doing some bits and pieces for T. G. Carr. Yeah. yeah,
1: it was it was my first paid job, I think, first time I ever earned a living in in for for directing. Okay, doing okay, Children's telly for T. G. Carr.
0: So was it just a case of because you eventually ended up in Barricas Angel. Eventually. How long between you making your first short and?
1: Uh, ten years. Yeah, about ten years. There wasn't really an industry, and then I made a short film that was written by Donald Clark, and it was a very successful short. It was sold to Canal Plus before it was even finished. It was that it was ridiculous. I, I, I mean, somebody showed them a rough cut, and they bought it, and that kind of um, got me an agent, and then the agent said, oh, well, I don't expect you to get this, but I'll send you along for an interview for Ballycus Angels for a practice, see, what, if, see what, they, what you think. And then I got the job, and then suddenly I was directing like you know, a successful TV drama with a massive crew, and you know, um, directing Colin Farrell, <laughs> although he wasn't Colin Farrell then. Yeah, was just but, Colin.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and was that daunting, that whole experience, or was it exciting? I think it
1: was too stupid to be daunted. You know? okay. I just kind of thought, ah, this would be fine, and mm-hmm. it was fun, I had a great time.
0: There was, um, and I mean, at the time, like Ballycus Angel, it was a bit like Glen row had been. It was a kind of permanent oh. fixture in the. Mm. They had a much, they had a much
1: bigger budget than row I'll tell you, they had a standing set in Ardmore all the time, and they had shot on film. They shot on Super sixteen, and they uh, yeah, it was it was very very well funded. It was very successful all over the world, and it was it was kind of closer to at the time what Game of Thrones is now in terms of the impact it had yeah. on the industry here. Yeah. It was huge. I mean, everybody worked for for. Every, you know, people people put their kids through college on Valley gay
0: Okay, and did that open more doors for you then? Because you went to the Royal, and you
1: yeah, I did other stuff. Then I did TV and all that in England and all that. But genuinely, what I never I never really wanted to do television as a director was never of interest. Because TV directing then was kind of like, um, I mean, you got to be aware. This is the you know the nineties when the independent film sector was all over the world was booming and you know you had Doug Lyman and Tarantino and Steven Soderbergh and people making films that cost no money and getting huge attention and that was what I was focused on and trying to do that in Ireland, trying to make you know, low budget um, genre movies, comedy, thriller, horror, whatever. You know, I spent most of my time in the nineties trying to get those films made, but there was no appetite for funding them here. It was it was very much at the time funding film funding in Ireland was all about trying to make I wouldn't even call them art films, it was just trying to make very introspective films about Ireland and Irish heritage and Irish, what is Ireland all about and all that. Films that never travelled outside of Ireland. And at the same time, you know, you watch the international landscape at the time and movies from Britain and France and all over were travelling, were were booming, but we had no breakout films from Ireland. So I got very frustrated with that and I just left Ireland and went to work in TV in England.
0: Right, okay. And then what would you consider in terms of the industry here was a breakout film. How, when did that change? Or Probably the
1: last four or five years, but the film industry worldwide is more or less dead now. There's no... That middle ground film that kind of existed in the 90s where you could make a a Reservoir of Dogs or you could make a Sex Lies Videotape and people actually went to the cinema and paid to see them. That doesn't happen anymore. You don't get... You know, mid-range films now that get seen by far fewer people than they would have done then. So it, I think my feeling is with the Irish film industry we kind of missed the boat on that and now it's kind of going to be it may well be television that kind of saves things and so on because you know that that does a, does, it's it's very hard to know how worldwide how those kind of small budget films or films that aren't from Hollywood are going to fare anymore you know
0: okay okay um, so going then to England and you worked on Casualty and yeah. The Royal and
1: every kind of middle of the evening TV show there was yeah. uh,
0: but what the, what was the experience of directing in that sphere like was you know they're well funded it's grand it's like it's a nice
1: way to learn how to use I mean I learned everything I know about or most things I know about um, working with big crews there because before that when I was doing shorts and all that you never really had everybody's working for free so it's all kind of you know you get on you get the best, you get on with the best you can but you know it's hard you know once you're working with a crew of 120 people you learn how to you know make the best of that how to plan and how to deliver on what you've planned and all that it was fun it was logistically really mm-hmm. interesting but not creatively interesting You
0: know. okay um, and how long would you have to film each episode of an hour long well,
1: TV is usually about an hour an hour long episode is two weeks okay in general I think that's the rule of the film across most television
0: so you were working in England uh, and you had left purposefully what brought you back
1: well that's tricky because basically I stopped directing and I decided I wanted to start developing my own stuff because I wanted to start making stuff that actually I kind of owned what they now call the IP and the intellectual property. It's become a buzzword but at the time. The only, I, 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 all I knew about producing was I worked with a bunch of different producers and I didn't think any of them were all that shit hot and I thought I could probably do this. But the only thing I knew about it was I read Robert Evans' book, *The Kid Stays in the Picture*, which tells the story of how he made some of the biggest hits in Hollywood, from *Godfather*, *Love Story*, and all that. And you know, kind of all I learned from that was you need to own copyright, you need to own material, you need to own a property that you can that you think has potentially will make money, and then you use that and you leverage that into actually having some control and some power. So I kind of I found something that I believed in, which was a. It was a completely left field thing. I didn't have any money. I couldn't buy um, the rights to a bestseller before it came out. But there was a blog um, on the internet called Belle de Jour by a woman who claimed to be uh, a prostitute, um, living a double life and kind of not telling anybody what she was doing. And she was writing this thing. It was winning awards, you know, best blog. But blogs were kind of what Twitter is now. Blogs were kind of this thing that were kind of they were there were people were writing them, and everybody had their own, you know, but. They weren't kind of taken seriously or seen as being anything, you know. Uh, there wasn't any idea that you could monetize this, so I was kind of looked upon as being a bit crazy when I was going on saying I want to make a movie, a TV show out of this blog. But we managed to. Uh, I, I hooked up with a very good Irish producer in London called Avril McRory, and can we close the door, please? Um, and together we. Um, put together a partnership with Tiger Aspect and the blog became a TV show called Secret Diary of a Call Girl and it took four years for this to happen and during that time I wasn't earning any money. So I eventually ran out of money and I left London and came back to Dublin and then about like six months after I came back, just as the we'd been turned down by everybody on Secret Diary and then Billy Piper um, got interested and said she'd play the lead and then suddenly it happened. Suddenly it was a hit, a hit international, you know, four seasons of it, you know, selling to every country in the world, big TV show.
0: And how did it end up on Billy Piper's desk? How, how does that happen?
1: It's all about connections and agencies and all that. I mean, basically, um, a large international agency had partnered up on the show and they happened to have Billy Piper on their books and then they brought in the property. It's the way everything happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's very hard to get people's attention if you're just nobody. You kind of need to so, you know, and then part of the downside is you give parts of it away because you end up giving away. In order to get that influence, you give away chunks. And the part, part of the chunk that was given away for, in order to get this credit on was my producer role. So I ended up with a, a financial um, stake in the show, but not a producer role, which is what I'd initially my whole four years of work had been to get a, my first-time producer credit on a TV show. Okay. So I didn't get that. So it was kind of, yeah, it was a bit of a, it was a bitter pill.
0: So what did you get then?
1: A shitload of money for okay. a very short time. Okay. For about four years, when the show was running, I was earning money, quite, you know, quite a quite a decent amount of money. All of which ended up getting turned into starting Screenworks, which is a company that I run
0: with Rob Coley. Yeah. And um, so, where did you and Rob meet?
1: Um, during my years of you know penury and trying to trying to keep. Body and soul together while I was trying to become a producer. I was working in RTE Cork doing factual programs down there for about six or eight months, and Rob's another staff member down there. He wasn't really called a producer, I think they didn't really have proper job titles. He was kind of like an all purpose staff member whose job was basically making programs that would work. So you kind of everything from being responsible for buying the right camera to organizing you know, you know organising shoots, to crewing, to researching, histor- historical research. He was doing everything, and I was kind of really impressed by this, because I'd never... I'd grown up in that kind of tradition of the film business where you do one thing, you know? And I'd always done... I'd never even dabbled in writing. I was really pretty much a director. I'd written some, but mostly I was just a director. And suddenly I'm kind of seeing the possibilities. And when you start doing... I mean... We were doing shooting our own rostrum camera. We were doing our own editing. We were, you know, we were pretty much doing everything, and I realized how much fun that was. We were working with people who were like-minded. So myself and Rob made a few programs together, and we got on really well. But it was kind of like you know, um, his background was comedy and factual, and my background was drama, and that's where I saw myself going back to. So it didn't seem like there was going to be any further thing. But then we kind of just kept talking about ideas and stuff, and ended up starting a company together.
0: Okay. Um. So, so from that partnership hmm. and the money that came from Secret Call Girl, is that when you could start doing the films that you had wanted
1: to? Yeah, because finally I was in a position. <coughs> up, to, up to that time, up till this was two thousand and seven, I suppose. From in all the years I've been working in the industry, which is basically the previous oh god um, fifteen or sixteen years constantly the stopping the stopping point always was you would have an idea you'd go to somebody who had money whether it was RTE or the film board or whatever and they would either say a flat no or they'd give you a tiny amount of development money which would just keep you alive until they finally said no and every idea i'd ever had it always stopped dead at that point so finally i had money to do my own stuff and develop my own ideas so i started to work on the john healy documentary barbaric genius first of all with the illusion that i was going to get RTE involved or whatever and, you know that didn't happen until the very end of the project but finally they did come in but one, only after five years and you know but bits and pieces of money came in you know I, but i was able to keep filming you know because i had some money to spend for the first time in my life i could if i wanted to fly to london and do some filming i could i couldn't I, and i paid i could pay crew i paid the crew out of my own pocket i paid for everything and ended up investing i think I, I think i probably in the end put in an equal amount of budget into that film as the film board did it was a big lot of money So that and Very Extremely Dangerous, which is my second feature documentary, were largely bankrolled and made possible by the fact that I didn't have to work. I could just do what I wanted to do for the first time in my life.
0: Which is an interesting
1: and salutary lesson, which leads me to when people in the film business say to me, or young people getting into film say to me, what do I need? What's the most important thing I can have to get by in this business? And I say rich parents. It's almost impossible to get by if you don't have some kind of, you know, way to keep yourself going while you're trying to make your your films because nobody is going to, you know, Nobody's gonna bankroll you until you actually prove yourself, and by that stage it's too late.
0: Um because you say you weren't working, but you mm. were working. Yeah, I was working you were working. For nothing. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, which isn't which is different.
0: Okay. Um so barbaric genius. Yeah. Well the
1: the backstory, well, when I was coming out of college, it was the late eighties, and Ireland there was nothing cool about Ireland. Ireland was this place that basically you know, I mean, the cool stuff was happening in the north of Ireland. All the ex- all the attention uh, of the world was focused on the north, the music, the films, things that were interesting were happening there. Dublin was dead. What was it? one thing that was interesting was the London Irish thing was starting to happen. You had the Pogues coming out, who, incidentally, at the time, nobody on Irish radio would play. They were. I think I might have been responsible for the first playing of the Pogues on Irish radio. I asked Dave Fanning play one of their songs when he came out to the college I was in, I think he played one but they were not on the radar they were considered to be I think in the same way as Father Ted was considered to be when he came out a piss take of the Irish by the English so anyway, I, I love the Pogues I loved um, John Healy's book The Grass Arena which was similar it was from that same world John was second generation Irish his parents had been from the west of Ireland they moved to England before World War II and he had been born there in the early 40s, and because his parent, his dad didn't go to war, you know, didn't feel he should, was Irish, he spent his childhood being battered in the school, and then he'd go home and be battered by his father, and he had this awful upbringing, but he was an intensely intelligent man, intelligent kid who grew up to be an intelligent man, but also had a weakness for for alcohol, and the book, book was the story of how he spent years on the street as a wino, and a mugger, and a thief until he discovered the game of chess and gave up drinking and became a, tried to go on the chess circuit but then discovered that chess didn't satisfy him either so he tried to set out to, do, to find new horizons for himself. So I'd been fascinated by this book for many years and why he had John Healy disappeared completely off the scene and I managed to track him down and thought this is a story that's going to be interesting to people here. found it, it was a very hard sell to to the people in charge of money in Ireland because they felt, well, because they felt he was English. They really felt he's got an English accent. It's an English story. The notion of the diaspora hadn't really percolated down. The person who was decisive in getting that film made was Alan Marr, who was the who was in charge of documentaries at the Irish Film Board, and who could see that there was a story there, and who was who was you know had enough of a vision to just you know stump up the, the few quid it took to to get started because you know it, as I say I did end up sp- spending a lot of my own money on it, but you you know in order to get people to feel it was a real film you need somebody behind you initially and when the film board came in and put money in that made it feel real and then people would start to work and and we started filming and and I thought uh, I would make it quite quickly and maybe have it on RTE within a year and of course it took five years of my life and nearly killed me in the process before it was finished.
0: And why why did it take so much longer than you expected?
1: First of all because we kept running out of money and people kept dropping out I mean first of all um, I had been working with Quite early on, because the once the film board money came in, it was possible to start talking to co-producers in the UK, and it's clearly a very, it's a very UK friendly story, you know. It's, it takes place mostly in London and the literary scene there and the world of London crime and all that. So we got a very, very, very well known co-producer, multiple Oscar winner, and all that kind of stuff on board, um, who then uh, had a different creative vision for how the project was going to go, and who dropped out, and then when they dropped out, that also took the film board's confidence from the project and there was a period of about two years where there was nobody putting money into it except me and I just kept filming and didn't stop until finally there was enough to do a cut which I was able to present to the film board and they said okay we'll give you a small amount more money so you can finish the film so I finally after five years finally managed to but partly there was a creative thing because it was as you, as you know if you've seen the film John is a very very difficult man to get to open up uh, and it, over a long period of time, I got to know him very well off camera as being a very charming, funny, warm, open person. But as soon as the camera went on, he clammed up and he became tense and he became, you know, the tension was radiating off him. And I could see, I mean, it was it was clear from the rushes that that wasn't going to work. No audience was going to sit through this story watching this man who clearly was hiding something. And it took me years to get to the point where I was, had enough Connection with him, where I could get him to loosen up on camera, and get the, sh- the the material from him that I needed to make the audience understand what kind of a man he was. So between the money and the creative stuff, it was a uh, yeah, it was it was a very very trying four or five years.
0: Um, and was it in the middle of this then that she started extremely dangerous? Yes. Um, so tell me about that and how that came about.
1: Well, just after the film board dropped out, which was a huge blow, that's when I actually I didn't have any white hair until that happened. And <laughs> literally in about a week, I had a, a lot of white hair on my head. Uh, I was sitting in the office in the middle of the night, you know, with nothing, you know, just trying to think of something, you know, a way out of this awful impasse, because I'd half shot this film, I'd invested a lot of my own money in it, and we couldn't finish it. And I got an email from um, the USA. And it was from Jerry McGill's um, fiance um, Joyce. Jerry was a guy who I'd been keeping tabs on because he turned up out of the blue about a year previously. I had been in America some years before that, trying to track him down for a documentary. I was trying to get off the ground in Memphis, Tennessee, and couldn't find him because he was in jail in Florida. Uh, he eventually got out of jail, picked up that I, you know, that I'd been looking for him, and got in touch and. Uh, you know, we were talking and it was kind of an interesting thing because, I mean, he was this kind of crazy outlaw guy who'd had a huge, you know, cult um, in the 70s, built around, not around his music so much as his persona. And um, I got the email just at the point at which Barbaric Genius had kind of hit a wall. I got an email from Jerry's partner saying he has cancer. Um, He's traveling to Memphis next week to make a record because he wants to, you know, get back in the music business. And will you come and film it? And, this is a guy, bear in mind, his only previous recording had been released in 1959. This was 2009. So it was 50 years later and this guy was dying of cancer and he was trying to follow up his original record, which wasn't a hit, you know, and, and, and save his life by making a record. Uh, so I instantly just thought, OK, this is a story, there's something here. And, you know, all my, my Memphis connections and friends, people I knew, thought I was insane. And this is a, this is a constant thread in my career. Um, people were saying, "This is crazy. We we're coming, to, coming all the way from Ireland for this. You never met this guy. What's going to happen, and we don't know what he's like and all. That. So I had enough money in the bank where I just said, "Fuck it, I'm going to get a flight. I'll get a return flight. See what happens. Bring a camera." And that was the start of this journey, that ended up being very extremely dangerous, because Jerry was an extraordinary subject for a documentary. And he continued to be an extraordinary subject through the three months that I was able to stick filming with him because this was the opposite of uh, the John Healey experience. This was a film that was started intending to be quite a long journey and ended up being a very short journey because it was, it was over when it was over. I mean, you know, when I at the point at which I thought I'm going to get killed if I stick around with this guy much longer. So
0: he was that difficult. He was that volatile. Is that
1: he was so dangerous? He was just somebody who Jerry was. Jerry, God rest his soul, died last year um, in a hospital peacefully, but uh, throughout his life he was always involved with people who came to bad ends, and he was the kind of person you might have come across him in your life. There are people in the world who get into all kinds of trouble, and they skate, they always get out scot-free, but everybody around them gets into trouble. Jerry was that, and I was sure that one of these days, if I travelled around with him long enough, he was driving in a car stuffed to the gunnels with knives guns drugs and he was a three time felon which meant he should have had none of those things and if we got stopped by the cops I knew I was I was going to be the one who ended up in jail not him because that's the way things worked so you know it was interesting uh, we got there eventually we got to the end of the point where we, we, we where, where I said I can't film this anymore I can't can't go any further on this journey with Jerry. and then we started with the funding of the film board I started trying to put it together and but I actually no, that that's jumping ahead because I didn't start editing that until after Barbaric Genius had been finished. Uh, and it was really, it was the film board's faith in ha- when they saw the finished product that was Barbaric Genius and felt it was, you know, it, it had demonstrated um, ability. Then they finally got involved in funding Very Extremely Dangerous as well. So I more or less shot the entire film on my own money before we started the edit.
0: Right, okay. So filming uh, Extremely Dangerous, didn't go as you anticipated yeah. um, were you and maybe it wasn't the film you anticipated you were going to make were you still was it were you happy with the film you made oh,
1: yeah absolutely geez yeah. no but the idea was I mean I won, I went into it trying to make a feel-good redemptive film I don't know if you've seen um, Anvil the story of Anvil a documentary about a couple of washed up rock and rollers who kind of finally in their 50s make it big or if you've seen the movie um, Jeff Bridges uh, yes uh, Crazy Heart Crazy Heart yeah, yeah. yeah I kind of thought of it as being a cross between those two films it was going to be a redemptive film with this guy who'd had a difficult life who'd been a criminal who'd been in and out of jail and now he was dying and with the love of a good woman and music he was going to redeem himself but what we ended up with was this gruelling story of a man who no matter what, how many chances he got he would always take the wrong path, he would always go down the road of crime and, you know, criminality and bad behaviour, because that's what, even at the age of 80, it was still what was easiest for him, you know?
0: And did he see the film? Yes. Yeah. And what did he think of it?
1: Well, that was an interesting one, because it was, quite a while had elapsed between filming, and he had had a lot of illness, he'd he'd, he'd been through cancer, he'd been through a lot of therapy, I'm not sure if he had chemotherapy, but you know he had had gotten his various substance abuse problems under control with the help of Joyce, his fiancée, and he was a cameraman, and he sat and he watched the movie in a hotel room with me and Robert Gordon, the producer, and for the first 20 minutes, half an hour, he was really enjoying it, and then it got darker and darker, and I could just hear him going, oh Jerry, oh Jerry, to himself. And, you know, it ends with a very, very difficult to watch sequence. Um, Very, very psychologically violent and physically violent sequence. And he watched it all the way through and he just said, you know, it's a very, very hard thing to watch yourself, that messed up, that drunk, that high on film and see how you treat people, but I'm glad you did it and it tells the truth and thank you for making it. And my opinion of him shot up in that moment because... It's kind of a hard thing to watch yourself as you know others see you and he was a very very messed up man at that point in his life he was dying you know and he knew it and he was out of control so you know he watched it and then he went and sat and w- with w- even more difficulty knowing what was going to happen he went and sat and watched it with an audience in Memphis at the sneak preview that we had there that same evening and amazingly when he got up at the end the audience gave him a standing ovation even though he had behaved like an appalling human being on screen i think the fact that they could see that he'd sat there and he had witnessed it and, and that, that that gave them gave them a good feeling and you know the guy had his problems many many problems but god rest him he was a he was a, he was a, he was a real man in some ways and his he, he had a good he had a good heart in some ways but the film's coming out on dvd in november um, along with the CD of Jerry's recordings that were never released while he was alive. So I think people will get a chance to discover it all over again. Then it's been on theatrical release about a year ago, but it kind of came and went quickly. I think it's going to have a longer life on DVD.
0: Okay. When you're dealing with somebody, or when, you, when you're when you filming somebody who is so vulnerable, because it is a vulnerability, it's violent, but it's still vulnerable, yeah. is, that, um, is there an added responsibility on you as a director in the terms of the the choices you make on an edit or what's going oh, yeah, yeah. to happen? Or? The editor's all
1: about that. Yeah, the editors, I mean, somebody defined documentary to me recently as being the intersection between art and ethics and that's exactly what you end up with. You're kind of going, on the one hand, we have this extraordinary scene with this incredible mm-hmm. dynamic and this emotion and whatever. On the other hand, is it responsible to show this? Is it, you know, was he in his right mind? Are these people, you know, because we, we, we had, clearly we had, um releases from everybody everybody had agreed to be filmed but your responsibility doesn't end there and myself and Robert my producer Robert is a very experienced documentary producer and he's very he's from memphis so he understands the propensity to treat um southern folk as a kind of a cavalcade of freaks and kind of point fingers and all that and what he called, you know, gawk was what we took out, the kind of stuff where you're looking at the film just to see people screwing up. So we tried our best to take out as much of the gawk factor as we could from the film, but maintain the emotional core of it, which was about... And really try to get people to see what was, you know, the duality of somebody. That You know, in a similar way to John Healy, you can see more than one side to his personality. You can see that there are very dark sides. You can see that there are very extraordinary sides to him. You know, it's with with Jerry McGill. It's maybe it's more about promise that was never delivered because he was a very talented musician who never, never did what he should have done with his life. But you can still see the goodness in there somewhere.
0: Um, Jerry McGill, John Healy, Nathan Bernard Bernard Nathan, Nathan, um, which is another person you've made a documentary about. They're all quite uh, maverick. uh, Extreme people. Are you consciously drawn to that sort of a subject matter?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I I don't sort of go out and I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to like I told you, I, I tried to do the the Jerry McGill film was in, intentionally in the beginning. I really wanted it to be an uplifting, feel good, redemptive story of a man who overcame his demons, but it didn't go that way. Who. And with John Healy, I feel the John Healy story is a very redemptive and uplifting story with a, there's a dark side to it, of course. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, you just kind of tell the stories you can tell. You just kind of have to, you know, I wish in some ways it would be nice to be extreme, to have a, a, a more commercial mind, mindset about things But in some in some ways. But, uh, you know, maybe that's where, where I'm headed. But uh, it certainly in the past hasn't always worked out for the... Uh, Things haven't always been that simple. Okay,
0: um, and then documentary versus fiction filmmaking—the uh, differences when you're working in each for you.
1: Oh well, you know, it's there's no um, there's no comparison really. It's like, uh, I mean, that's part of the reason that it's fun to do both because mm-hmm. you know I'm planning a documentary at the moment, <clears throat> and I'm the part of my brain that's involved in that is. Completely different to the part of your brain that's involved in script writing or trying to package a drama, trying to put together deals, and that. You know, it's just, it's, 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 they're like just complementary different parts of the same industry that have nothing in common, really. And I couldn't think of anything between the two. I mean, with documentary, it's the reverse of drama because you're kind of, your, your script writing thing is where it happens in the edit I mean really you you create the a documentary is created in the edit um, whereas in drama clearly you spend many you spend an awful lot of time working on your script and your casting and then you basically the, the production is just kind of the logistical out, working out of the planning that you've already done with some surprises but hopefully not too many in documentary you're always hoping for surprises in drama you're dreading them so yeah it's they're just too it's fun to do both I don't know why more people don't
0: and when in the three documentaries you've done at any point did you consider doing them as drama stories or did they always suggest themselves as documentaries to you
1: well I mean you couldn't really I mean the John Healy thing I did spend some time working on the notion of trying to make a feature mm-hmm. based on his book The Grass Arena but after i spent a couple of years on it and I put some again ploughed quite a bit of my own money into it and it became clear to me that I'd kind of done that story, you know, I'd done and I in a way I prefer to have barbaric genius be the my favorite. if somebody else makes a film with the Grass Arena then that's great, but I can't really. I don't think I'd probably be better off not. With Jerry McGill, there have been interestingly some approaches made in from the American end recently about the idea of whether it would work as a drama. I don't know. I mean it's kind of it'd be a crazy idea. I think it'd be fun. I mean enough time has passed that maybe it could be a story you could tell. As a drama, and with Natan, in a way, a drama might be the perfect way to tell the story because it's a period. Fit, it's different to every other documentary I've made. It's uh, much more kind of it's something that happened deep in the past. Everybody involved is dead. You know, it's uh, it's impossible to you can't do the fly on the wall version of it. So you know, we're actively looking at the possibility of whether there's there may be a feature drama based on that story that could be doable. Okay. But whether it happens or not, who knows?
0: Um, but one isn't exclusive to the other. Either. No, no, yeah. no. I think they're kind of. It's
1: just a question of taste, you know. I mean, and whether you have the energy to throw yourself into telling the same story again in a different form. I mean, it's exhausting enough the first time without having to do it again a second time. You know.
0: um, so Amber, then, which you directed for no, you it. Didn't, I, I it. No, I produced I Produced it. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Was, that's okay. No, <laughs> no,
1: that's fine. No. Paddy's Sullivan did a brilliant job of directing. I couldn't. I couldn't have directed it. I was too busy producing. It.
0: Um, so, how did you get involved in that?
1: Rob Colley and I had been trying, um, um, had tried our best to get uh, various things off the ground with RTE in the kind of area of comedy or factual or whatever, and nothing was working. So we eventually, you know, decided we'd try and do some drama. And I was very sceptical about the notion because I just thought so little drama gets made in Ireland; it's incredibly unlikely. That of all the people pitching drama ideas to RT drama, that we would be the people they would talk to. But my preconceptions were completely overturned when we went in to sit down with the drama department and found that you know they were very interested not only in hearing pitches from us but also in challenging our ideas of what would be acceptable because we'd just done some low budget. Web drama stuff for them in the Storyland strand, and I think we first went in with a couple of pitches that were very kind of like what you see on UTV, ITV kind of crime series, you know, kind of a like a Silent Witness type thing, or whatever. Very generic in a way. You know, I mean, it would have been good, but still, it wasn't. You know, and they said we would really like you to challenge yourself, come back with something that would surprise us, come back with something that could potentially be you know, state of the nation kind of filmmaking that could actually address the entire country, not just, you know, um, a genre piece that we clearly could be made and sold, could sell very well at MIP and could travel around the world, but isn't actually very specific. We want you to make something really specific to your own experience, to your own lives and to Ireland. So we went out, literally went out and sat in the canteen, in RTE or outside the canteen, and started to talk about the idea for Amber because uh, Rob had had uh, the experience of having a missing person in his family uh, about a year previously. And it was still very fresh in our minds. And it was a very, very different situation to Amber. It couldn't have been more different. But the emotional journey and the process that you go through in trying to deal with that was very fresh. And it seemed obvious to us that we could, if we, want, if, we if they were asking us to do what we thought they were asking us to do, we could present them with something very challenging and different and we just immediately went I mean I remember the the visual um, metaphor that came up straight away was that it would be four episodes the disappearance of Amber is like a rock thrown into a still pool of water at the beginning of episode one and then each episode is the ripples as they go further out and affect different people and affect people initially close to the family and finally people who've never met Amber who've never had anything to do with her and we also said we discussed how to end it, and came to the conclusion that it should be left open, and you never find out what happened to her. So we went back to that, pretty much that pitch on you know one page, two page pieces, two pieces of paper, and that was the beginning of, of developing that, was that.
0: The beginning of that. Now, you mentioned the ending, which made Joe Duffy. Um, yeah, <laughs> I made mean, the whole
1: the whole country was throwing was, throwing shoes at the television.
0: Um, did you were you surprised by that reaction?
1: I was out of the country uh, for most of the period when I was out of the country for the two three weeks previous to it. I arrived back the day that the last episode aired. So I hadn't been around for the amount of, I hadn't realised quite how much hype and quite how much um, excitement the show had built up. I'd been watching it on, watching the Twitter feed and kind of seeing that lots of people were commenting on it and all that and that was enjoyable. But... You know, it it was interesting because we we conceived it, it was a very cheaply made show, and we conceived of it as something that would probably end up being tucked away on RT2 at 10 o'clock at night. We didn't really know what was going to happen to it. The fact that it got this kind of viewership was a huge surprise and a huge thrill. And then I think maybe too much might have been made in the publicity about you know it being a mystery. It was never a mystery to us, it was more like it was a drama. It was like... The drama of the story is not what happened to Amber. The drama of the story is how do the people left behind deal with what's happened to them? How do they get on with their lives and what each of their individual arcs as they try to process the awfulness and move on? So you know, it was it was a bit of a surprise, but it was you know it was kind of one of those things. For a couple of days, your whole world was sort of a bit rocked. Uh, I found it quite entertaining because I've always enjoyed. uh, furores. i've never been involved in one before but i've kind of i like the idea that uh, a work of you know fiction can create this kind of excitement and anger and you know chaos in the media uh, whether it's music whether it's drama whether it's whatever you know um when i was a kid it was the sex pistols or When I was a bit older, it was the KLF burning a million quid, and now it's amber, you know, you kind of... As long as something like that is going on to make people angry, it will always be something to focus their anger on. It's interesting to be that person for a day or two. Yes,
0: yeah, and I mean, the point is to incite a reaction, good or bad, you know, and you did that. Well, yeah, but it
1: wasn't intended to incite a reaction. It was intended to... To a degree, it was intended to incite the reaction of, we've gone on this awful journey, and now we are in the position of the people who have lost something. And... What's really interesting is there was a perception here in Ireland um, which was quite, you know, um, quite a noisy um, group of people about that it was some sort of mistake or some sort of um, un- uncompleted story whereas in actual fact that was the completion of the story. That was the end. If it's not completed to the, in the manner that these people expected then that's, you know, then they were expecting something different. Mm-hmm. And I found it interesting to see that people kind of got quite uh, irate about us personally and felt cheated by us personally whereas the reaction in the united states has been very different it's been more like people going you've broken some really serious storytelling rules here but you've done it f- to a purpose and we and and people find that interesting and find it quite challenging and find you know find it uh, they embrace it you know so we kind of you know i think it's a national i think there's some some to some degree we came a proper on the national cultural cringe, the feeling that Irish culture will always let you down somewhere along the line, that people will do something. That, and people kind of went, oh, well, they fucked up. But whereas in actual fact, we did what we were going to do. And if you don't like it, that's okay. But it was exactly what we wanted to do from the beginning. So it's an interesting, I don't know, its uh, I see it as being a kind of a litmus test of what Irish people want from their home-produced culture. They want something a little bit more reassuring. We were, we were making the programme during the worst year of the post recession era when there were just missing person posters everywhere everywhere all over and you know every week somebody a friend of a friend or a you know a relative of a friend would be reported missing or would have com- would have committed suicide the suicide rate in ireland was through the roof the f- the series was absolutely suffused deliberately with that awful grief and loss that the country was going through And the fact that we were losing an entire generation, which has still not been processed, the fact that in the time since then, the emigration from Ireland is far, far worse than it was in the 80s when I was leaving college. It was bad then, and all my friends left. Now it's ten times worse. And I think maybe in hindsight, in a few years' time, people will look back and realise that Amber walking down the road and disappearing is saying goodbye. That was saying goodbye to a whole generation of possibilities of Ireland for Irish people.
0: It's funny you say that because um, when it aired on BBC, is it A.A. Gill? Yeah. He, the, he spotted that. He, I was yeah. really surprised by yeah. that. Yeah, it, it was, and it was, uh, I was surprised too, but mm. it was so. I, yeah. I never
1: thought A.A. A. Gill, of all people, would be so sensitive. I mean, people here got it Declan Lynch and The Independent got it, and uh, you know, there were a few people who got it, but uh, you know it was extraordinary for an Englishman to be so sensitive to the Irish mm-hmm. situation to actually spot the subtext of that show and I was really I was pleased by that yeah um,
0: there was a, a quite a long time between you making it and it airing mm-hmm. was that frustrating?
1: <laughs> it was horrible <laughs> it still is it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a no it's like no it's like you, you're a racehorse that's been brought to the paddock and brought out to the, brought to the starting gate and ready to run, and then they just bring you back to the, back to the stable. You know, it's uh, it's not good for you, and it's uh, it's it's been a couple. It was a couple of years of intense intense frustration, but you know, in the end, it uh, the difference was. I think if it had been broadcast when it was initially commissioned, I don't think the stripping element of showing it four nights one after the other, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Would have occurred. I think it probably would have been shown one a week, and it wouldn't have had the same impact. I think in the interim, RTE became more aware of the value of more um, stunt scheduling, so to speak, and they got they that that's what they tried that out with Amber, and it worked brilliantly for them. I mean, still as a test case, in ter- they use it as a test case in terms of how to successfully kind of mobilise social media and all that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, but the three years of waiting was yeah pretty horrendous. Okay.
0: Um, but it has gone on to be so successful. It's
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all it's travelled and it's there's currently. I'm not sure what's going to happen. We're not directly involved, but there is the American remake rights have been optioned and whether that will actually go ahead or not. It's all on the lap of the gods. But you know, it's, it's interesting to think that they might do it.
0: Okay, um, you were named congratulations as one of Variety's ten directors to watch last year. Yeah, how did you hear about that?
1: Uh, a writer um, who had contacted me from Variety, well, not a writer, is the one of the editors of Variety had been a fan of very extremely dangerous, and uh, he had been saying, "Oh, we want to do something about the film and Variety," but you know, it wasn't on theatrical release, and it wasn't on DVD, and it was difficult and all that. So I was walking, I was walking down Pierce Street or something like that, not in some very unglamorous part of Dublin, and I got a phone call saying. I've oh, I decided I think we should put you on the Variety 10 Directors to Watch list next year and I kind of oh that sounds good thank you that's terrific and he said yeah I think it has legacy value for you and that's going to be useful I mean Americans use all these phrases when legacy value I don't know what. anyway so I didn't have a clue what that meant and then I went I hung up the phone and I went to the office and I googled it and went holy shit you know that's Darren Aronofsky and Mark Wahlberg and uh, Ben Affleck and uh, all, you know I'd like all these people had been on this, this list and then I started to think did did I did I hear him right maybe he said something different I'm just misunderstanding because I really this isn't you know I didn't I don't expect to be on this list so then I had to wait because I was kind of too embarrassed to call him back and go can you repeat that so I waited for a couple of months and then I kind of sent him a couple of emails going should I be looking at coming over and he's like yeah definitely come over it's in January come to but then I still couldn't get my head around what it was and eventually they they announced it and I was like, holy crap, yeah. Because um, the, the director of one of my favourite films of last year, Selfish Giant, uh, who's, God, I can't remember her name. God, oh. Terrific. Uh, Cleo, Cleo Bernard was on the list as well and, uh, you know, really terrific people were on the list and I went over to the, the ceremony thing they had in January and it was it was great. You know, met Colin Farrell <laughs> for the first time since Mally Angel. So, um uh, yeah, it was it was it was interesting.
0: And when he mentions legacy value, is it significant? Does it help open or is know. Oh,
1: yeah, oh yeah, certainly. I mean, geez, you get people ringing you up and stuff and going, "Oh, we saw you on this list and we're really interested." Yeah. I mean, I've got a <coughs> proper LA agent and manager now and uh, really, you know, that's that's the first time in my career I've had all that stuff and people ringing you up. You know, you get phone calls at 8, 8.30 at night because the time zones are all different and suddenly you have to be kind of on business hours again and it's it's a whole different thing. I'm just not used to it. But, you know, that wouldn't have happened without the variety thing and, you know, various other little movements that are happening are happening because of that.
0: And is America somewhere you see yourself going? If they'll have me? Yeah. I don't
1: know. I mean, we'll see. It's it's it. We're talking about doing projects in America. Myself and Rob are developing American set drama series and uh i mean you would want to be crazy not to because i mean look at the we're working in tv drama whether you like it or not the absolute world standard for tv drama at the moment is not anymore in europe or britain or ireland or wherever it's in it's in the usa all my favorite you know when I was a kid, my favorite TV shows were mostly British, apart from a few American ones like Hill Street Blues or whatever. But the really good stuff was, you know, came out of Britain. It was Alan Bleasdale or Dennis Potter or whatever. Now it's you know David Milch and David Simon, and it's uh, even shows like Hannibal, which I think is extraordinary. And you know these kind of a, the level of adventurousness and the level of experimentation happening in American TV drama. It's inversely proportioned to what's going on in movies because if you talk to people who are funding movies, unless you've got a big name star attached, you are stuck with, you've got to, you've got to be doing something in a very, very clearly defined genre with a very, you know, you got to be really, you got to be sure where your audience is because people are not taking risks with movies anymore. TV, as long as you can kind of get into, get past the first hurdle which we seem to have done with having, by having made Amber. They will let you take risks, and they will let you do different things, and they will let you. One of the things that the American TV um, makers that we've been talking to are most excited by is the fact that Amber is rule breaking, and they right now rule breaking is what works. True Detective, with its unreliable narrators, broke one of the cardinal rules in storytelling, and it worked brilliantly. And you keep seeing that now with um, new TV shows. It's all about how is it going to turn your experience of watching TV upside down. It's not about watching something comforting and kind of safe. It's about... You're going to be amazed. I'm currently watching Steven Soderbergh's TV show, The Nick, which is probably the goriest thing I've seen on television in a long time, and it's completely brilliant. But again, it would never have been made as a movie.
0: Okay. Um, so producer, writer, director... Editor. Um, editor, everything. Uh,
1: storyboard artist. Um, and storyboard artist as well.
0: In all of those things... Um, like what would you, if I asked you, what are you, what do you do? How would you identify yourself? <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: God, I'm a father. I don't know. I don't, I don't really know. Um, I just, I, I desperately try to hang on to the industry, in, to some, some level of the industry where I can actually make programs and uh, whether it's, I mean, when I couldn't make, do- dra- when I, when I didn't get dramas made, I made documentaries. You know, I mean, I'll just make whatever I can, and if if I'm let make dramas, I'll make dramas, and if some point in the future I'm not let make dramas anymore, I'll make documentaries again, or I'll keep doing two, the two concurrently, which would be the best thing. I don't know, it's just about trying to make something. You just want to have a drive to put stories together and put, you know, put them on camera tell the story, get it out there. I'm just, I just like telling stories, and, you know, it can't be stopped.
0: Um. And the of the producing, the directing, the writing—is there one that you particularly enjoy doing over the others? When you're writing,
1: you want to be directing, and when you're directing, you want to be writing. And when you're, you know, producing is never fun. Producing is only fun when you're actually—if you've just got a big whack of money into your bank account and you're out there trying to actually put together a crew and cast and locations and all that—that can be fun. But the many, many years of phone calls and emails and bullshit that lead up to that are no fun at all. So the fun part of it is really... what It's 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 always the next bit you're going to be doing. At the moment, we're just deep in writing and I'm desperate to get into production. When I'm in production, I'll probably be... probably be desperate to get finished in production so we can get into the edit. And when we're in the edit, it'll be all about trying to get back to writing. So it's always, like you know, it's the next thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and writing, when you're writing, like, the practicalities of your day, do you... <laughs> You know, because I was chatting to somebody recently as a writer and she's doing this job and that job and she said, it's not really possible to write in a two-hour space in your day. Do you try and dedicate it? It depends. I mean, you know, uh,
1: I, I, I wrote my first... I mean, it took me a long time to start to believe that I could actually be a writer. And that was the last thing. I, I mean, I'd done everything else before I ended up deciding I could actually call myself a writer. And the first script I wrote by myself, basically, I just got up very early every morning before anybody else was around so I could get a few hours worked on at 6.30 or 7 in the morning and get usually get two or three hours under my belt before there was a phone call or anybody around. And that worked brilliantly. And since then I haven't really returned to that, but I've kind of, I think for the most part when you're writing, you're kind of trying to make sure that you're not waiting for inspiration because that's the worst thing you can do. You try to get up. Write as many words as you can, and then if you end up erasing two thirds of them, it's okay. You've, you know, you've you've done it's 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 it's. I think every script feels different. You know, depending, it has different rhythm, and you know, you. One of the trickiest things, and one of the things that we're discovering, you know, that we're finding out how to do all the time is co-writing because myself and Rob co-write, and it's always a, you know, it's, it's a tricky chemistry to get right. I mean, people, it's it's it makes being in a relationship or a marriage look re- relatively straightforward and and simple. you know it's. It, it's complicated. So, uh,
0: yeah. Um, Eve, funding has come up a lot in the conversation. Are there introductions you'd like to see made or changes to the current... in terms of enabling Irish filmmakers?
1: The only thing that comes to the mind just off the top of my head is RTE need to be making feature-length documentaries. They need to be putting money into docs that are not part of a series or not part of a you know soap. they need to be actually funding because some of the most successful films to be made in ireland the last few years have been knuckle the summit um his and hers these you know these are not flukes these are films made by really skilled filmmakers to for an audience an irish audience that really appreciates feature documentary making and rt television does not have a dedicated slot for feature documentaries Every so often you get one through. The summit was on last year. I produced Ciaran Ke- uh, Scott's film in a house that ceased to be, which is premiering next week, and that's going to be on RTE sometime in the next, you know, foreseeable future. And they're showing it at, f- at the full uncut length, which is great because you know a lot of the time when you make a feature documentary, you're told the TV broadcast of it will be 52 minutes, and that's what happened to Barbaric Genius. It was put out at a truncated length. I really feel that uh, it would be a huge step in the right direction, if RTE had a Storyville-type strand where they made feature documentaries the centre of their schedule. Similarly, I think it would be very useful if RTE committed to making feature films, feature-length dramas, on, on, a, on a regular basis, however many a year. It's a difficult thing. It's a it's a constant conversation between film board and, and RTE, and they haven't come to an agreement on it. It seems to me like it's a, it's a huge missing element from our national culture, is that there isn't a, a committed... Uh, interest from from in or in the from the broadcaster in funding features, we still get through. People still fund their films one way or the other. I mean, um, Brendan Muldowney has just funded uh, his next film. It's going to be I think UTV or the broadcaster. You know, there'll always be a way of getting them made, but it's 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 difficult. And I think that kind of joined up thinking has has, has always been very um, lacking in Irish culture. But uh, for the most part, I mean, I'm a, i am I'm, I'm a big fan of what. Uh, James Hickey and Jane Gogan are doing with their respective, you know, portfolios, and they're they're doing a lot of good and, uh, great work, and getting. A lot, I mean, look at what's happening with Irish film. Now we've had, you know, three or four huge breakout successes in the last couple of years, maybe more than that, not, but uh, it's, it should have happened 15, 16, 17 years ago. That's what I'm saying. But now it's finally happening. I hope there's still a film industry there in a few years that we can continue to do this. But it's, you know, it's in an, it's tricky. Okay.
0: Um, what are your strengths in what you do? You know what makes you good at what you do?
1: Uh, utter inability to take no for an answer. Just sheer stupid stupidity, boneheaded uh, stubbornness, and and never ever ever admitting that that's it, it's over, we can't do it. We just, I mean, that's been terrible sometimes. We keep flogging a dead horse, but you know, sometimes I mean, the films I've made you know it would not they would not have been made if i'd if i if i agreed that you know with everybody else at the time so you go through a period where people are everybody's telling you you're insane but then you come out the other end and the films finished and you know people stop telling you you're insane hopefully
0: um your biggest influence
1: i don't know what my biggest influences are i have don't i have no clue i really it's a really hard question to answer i like lots of movies i like i watch lots of films i watch thousands and thousands of films like Martin Scorsese and Orson Welles and um, Werner Herzog and Earl Morris and Les Blanc and Wes Anderson and well, I, mean, I couldn't list a million, but then I don't know if any of them, I mean, I, I think if anybody looked at my films and said, I'll I tell you what, actually, the biggest influence I've had is a filmmaker, an Irish filmmaker you probably, know nobody here has ever heard of, called... Um, Leo, Leo Regan. Leo Regan, who is an Irish documentary filmmaker who works in the UK and made some some of the best documentaries I've ever seen. Myself and Ross Whitaker are the only two people. We get together and we talk about Leo Regan films at great length. It gave me the freedoms. Watching his films, which are not conventionally beautifully made, they are very rough and ready and very handheld and very gonzo, gave me the courage to make the films I was making because, you know, I can't make those... Beautifully framed, Werner Herzog, um, John T. Davis, uh, whatever kind of films shot on sixteen mm with a light meter and, and tripod. I'm just out there on my own with a handheld camera. Leo Regan made some of the best documentaries ever to be made in this country, and his name is completely unknown within Ireland. Um, and uh, you know, I keep trying to get people to do a retrospective of his work here. He was a massive influence on me on a very practical level, in that it showed that you don't have to be You you know, I'd never studied documentary, I'd never studied camera work, I'd never studied editing, I'd never studied any of the things I did, but I ended up just doing them all myself. And he kind of, you know, I I was well into making Barbaric Genius before I actually met him and got a chance to tell him what a great influence he'd been. But, um, you know, apart from that, I can't think of any really practical influences I've had. Uh, A good one is, um, years ago I was being taught in Dundleary by Owen Harris, who taught screenwriting there, and I had about a year of Owen's lectures. And he was probably the first and last person to ever tell me anything useful about screenwriting. Ever since then, everything else I've been picking up has been kind of embellishing what he already told me. Um, so Owen was a massive um, influence on the dramatic end of how I think, and you know, how, how I structure drama and all that, and in documentary, Leo Regan. Uh,
0: the best and worst advice you've ever got received?
1: Jesus these are hard questions I don't know
0: I don't know I don't know if I've ever
1: I don't I've ever listened to anybody's advice did I ever listen to um, uh, uh, mm-hmm. Gasp- Gaspar Noé has a great line about advice he says I love advice advice is great as long as you don't take it and I think that's kind of good I mean sometimes people give you advice and it can be useful at the time but I mean man I can't. I can't remember anybody ever telling me anything that really really it
0: really... Works. Yeah,
1: I don't know. The worst advice... Jeez, I've had so much bad advice in my <laughs> life. And I've listened to most of it. I don't know.
0: What, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self?
1: Oh, man. At some point, I'd be tempted to say give up. And on the other <laughs> hand... Uh, I'd probably I'd say move to New York. Um, I probably would say, yeah, if I, if I could... I would say, get the hell out of Dublin, go to New York, and uh, t- but don't take drugs in New York. Just stay away from the, the crazy people. Just go and get a camera and start making films, you know? Because it was um, I look back now and I think of all the crazy and mad, mad stuff that was happening all around the world when I came out of college, and I missed it all because I was in Dublin. And nothing was happening in Dublin in that era. So, uh, yeah, I'd go get, a, get the hell out of Ireland quicker.
0: And um, would you say that now to a 20-year-old? I don't know.
1: I think now it's different because you can't go to New York you can but you'll end up in Queens or you know Flatbush or somewhere like that where you can afford a flat same thing in London you move to London you can't afford to live in London you, live, you end up living in Enfield you the years during which I was very lucky to be around for as you know to have you know enough money to survive in London in a period where I could actually live in the middle of London I lived in Soho right by you know right in the middle of all the madness and uh I could never afford to do that now, and certainly if I moved to New York, I could never afford to live anywhere, even you know, halfway um, cool or interesting. The artists and the the people who make art and the people who are experimental and people who have ideas are now too poor to live close to each other in central central cent- the middle of cities. The kind of artistic renaissance as you saw in the seventies and early eighties in New York and in London can't happen anymore because all these people are. Threaded out around the fringes in cheap accommodation, out around the outer networks of the outer boroughs, and they don't meet each other anymore. So I don't know. I think those, kind of, those kinds of meetings of minds and those kinds of inspirations now happen on the internet. People now meet each other and find each other wherever they are in the world. You can be collaborating with a filmmaker in Sao Paulo, in Brazil, or a filmmaker in Reykjavik, and never, you know, you might, you might already have developed your idea before you meet. The the, the the manner in which things work has changed completely because of the economics of it so I don't know what advice I'd give a 20 year old now I certainly don't think I'd say go to New York I think they'd be crazy I think Patti Smith said recently you know artists don't come to New York it's over it's closed it's finished go, go somewhere else so maybe there is a place maybe there's another part of the world where people can go Winnipeg or uh, I don't know somewhere <laughs> where they can make art but it's not New York
0: um So you've explained the frustrations uh, but what do you love about what you do? Or why do you do what you do? It's a
1: good feeling to make something that you feel proud of and is different and is new and actually makes people feel something. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's the same thing as a novelist or a painter or a songwriter feels. You create something that wasn't there, you put it out there and people will either respond to it or they don't. If they don't respond to it, fine, if they do respond to it, that's a good feeling when people come to you and go, your film, that film, or that thing that you made was moving or had a resonance with me, or, you know, it's it's a nice thing to feel. But I think actually, if, to be perfectly honest, it's not, I don't really care that much about what, about that, I care more about the feeling of actually making it. And the process of making films, to me, is a very rewarding one. Not financially, clearly, but very rewarding creatively and very rewarding in a enriches your life you know and for me anyway it's a way that that it's the only way I've ever um I haven't found anything else any other way to live that uh, delivers the same richness of experience you know and meeting interesting people meeting extraordinary people and you know yeah it's fun.
0: Paul Dwan thank you very much. Thank you.